you have a question about your home? Call Ken the Contractor. I want to insulate uh, my crawl space. What's your opinion on putting plastic uh, on the dirt floor? Ken Patterson is a Class A licensed contractor, and now Ken the Contractor brings his years of experience to the radio. Uh, first statement I would make about crawl spaces under modern-day construction, you're going to put plastic down if you want to get an inspection. It's actually There's a section in the building code that requires that today. So I strongly encourage it, even before it was in the building code. This is something that I have always done. Do you have a question about your home inside or out? Call Ken the Contractor. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another hour of Ken the Contractor. Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. Don't forget, a house is what you build, a home is what you make it. Ken is right here weekends at this time answering the questions that are important to you. Today's homeowner, you can join us by dialing 800-614-2975. You can friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor, and also follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. And you can forward us your emails to our website, KenTheContractor.com. Now, we are a very transient society. It, it doesn't take much for us to pick up and move from one part of town to the other or all the way across country. And many times that move is dictated by our careers. And for so many of us, we have to constantly deal with the issue. Is it better or cheaper, more cost effective for us to buy or to rent? And the answer to the questions that we may have had three, four, five, ten years ago may well be different today. And one of the things we've learned in recent years, clearly it's different from one market to the next. Because what works in Seattle doesn't necessarily work in Topeka, uh, Tampa, uh, Baltimore. It varies from one location to the next. Zillow Real Estate Research recently completed extensive studies in several, quite a few cities across this nation. But they did something differently than what typical real estate folks, builders, contractors, including me, would talk to all of us about where ordinarily when we look at this we're saying well how long are you going to stay in the home there are two or three basic items and that generally is just the time versus the rent are you going to be here five years three years ten years what's the anticipation and what's it going to cost you to make the mortgage payment on the house versus renting an apartment or renting a home and that has been the standard that most of these decisions have been based on for so many years but Zillow has gone beyond that. Uh, they have gone to, they've developed a new set of indices that look not only at monthly rentals and compare mortgage payments, but they include every aspect of home ownership versus the cost to rent. And they have even included variations from one city to the other, looking at more than 200 cities across the United States. And I will drive you back to some to my website for more information than what I'm going to be able to give you. So if you're not hearing the answer you want here, go to KenTheContractor.com and click on the tab uh, identified, I think, as real estate. But the timeline has always been important, and it continues to be among the absolute most important, whether you're going to buy or whether you would like to buy or whether you would like to rent when it comes time to make that decision. Typically, we have said that if you're going to stay in a home at least five to seven years, you might be better off looking to purchase that house. But you're going to find in some cases, based on the new formulas that the Zillow has come up with, that there are places in the country right now, Miami, Tampa, Fort Lauderdale, that if you're going to stay there 1.6 years or longer, you are better off financially buying a house because real estate prices are so low than you are to rent because rental properties are so high. They have just moved the other way around during 
this uh, extensive recession that we have been in nationwide because folks know you've got to live somewhere and if you can't buy if you don't have that cash for the down payment you're going to rent rental rates have gone up across the country so in places again like tampa south florida 1.6 years and the extreme in this research that has been done is 8.3 years looking at san jose california so for those of you that are in the process of loading the truck, even as we speak today, saying, well, we thought about renting or we're going to be loading a truck in six weeks or we're moving in a couple of months, we don't know what to do in terms of where we're going, look at the location you're moving to and then look, consider the time you're going to be there. You also need to consider future prices on rents. Now, Zillow has done this in their research. It's going to be difficult for most of us to say, well, I don't know what rents are. I'm going to a new city. Have they gone up? Have they come down? Are they likely to go up? I don't know what the rental market supply and demand is. And the same for home prices. So these folks have done the research for most of us. Some of the other advantages we have, we know if we own a home, we've got some tax benefits. There aren't many of those left, but we still have some tax benefits and writing off interest expense and so forth. But then we're stuck with maintenance costs. We're in apartments. Perhaps we're not. Or in renting the home, you may not. Again, depending on the type of lease agreement that you structure. And then when it comes time to buy, you've got all this front-end cost. So buying may not be an option for everybody, depending on your financial wherewithal and the time you're going to be there. But again, the research that has been done throws in to the calculation so many more things, and they're actually looking at what they're calling a break-even horizon. That's what Zillow refers to as a break-even horizon. So when I mentioned a moment ago the Tampa, Fort Lauderdale, South Florida, 1.6 years, they're saying a 1.6 years based on current cost and anticipated cost of both housing as well as rental properties and operating cost, everything thrown into the mix, that in 1.6 years you break even. You are now money ahead in 1.7, 1.8. You're saving money to have purchased a home versus renting a home in that market. And for others, it's three years, 3.8, four, five years. But I think if you look at the research and you think about this before you make your decision, you're going to find it may change your mind on occasion. So this is extremely comprehensive. I have never seen a report done this thoroughly that deals with all aspects of multiple markets, not just a blanket coverage. A few other locations that you'll find, Cleveland, Ohio, 2.4 years, St. Louis, 2.5. We look at Los Angeles at 4.3. And jump back down to some of the lowest markets in terms of that break-even. I said Tampa, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Las Vegas, Orlando, Phoenix, Detroit, uh, Riverside in California, Dallas, Fort Worth. All of those are less than two. And, folks, 75% of the U.S. cities was studied here, you'll find that it's less than three years before you break even, the difference between renting and buying. Five years ago, this was completely different. The world has changed. Well, you know, and I know if you're looking for a common denominator in this survey, places where the subprime bubble burst, you just rattled off a bunch of those. Florida, Las Vegas. That's the two or less. All of those were California, right. But the places where renting still may be a good deal are those handful of locales that maintained their property. And in some cases, such as in and around Washington, D.C., and uh, the northern Virginia and the Maryland suburbs up there, they're actually, their property values are above where they were before the crash in 2008. Same thing true in certain markets in California like San Francisco. Right. And these are pockets nationwide. And what Zillow's looked at is an entire city or a metro area where they've done these studies. 
So you can find those pockets, those islands, even within these cities, and these are areas that probably will never go backwards. I mean, there are just certain characteristics about the community, the real estate, uh, the population that's there, the economy, that it's not likely to change even when there's a recession. So you need to do your homework, but this is the most comprehensive report and research that I have seen in my career, and I recommend that you all check this out. Go to KenTheContractor.com and go down to the tabs link and click on real estate. Okay. it is some very solid information, and I think you'll be surprised. I was surprised when I saw the survey, and you'll be surprised at the hard numbers and how quickly in, in many of these cases, particularly in some of these hardest-hit markets, it really is cheaper to own than it is to rent. It's an eye-opener, and it's hard for most of us to fathom that because we've talked certain language and statistics for so long. All right, coming up on this edition of Ken the Contractor this hour, half hour from now we'll have our app of the week and coming up at the bottom of the hour on green building, we'll talk about green bulbs. That's all coming up this hour. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back to Ken the Contractor. I'm Jim Britt along with Ken Patterson and Ken the Contractor. If you'd like to join us, have a question for Ken. The number is 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email us your questions to the website, kenthecontractor.com. Franklin has been spending some outdoor time out of Reading, PA. Says we're all spending the day recently on the deck with my family, which tells me he's had at least two or three people out there on this particular day. Said I noticed it felt very shaky. I checked and with my son's help to look at the support boards and we determined that they were loose. It said once we got under it, I was shocked to see the entire deck was about to fall off the wall. Now there's some of you out there that are probably saying maybe I should be checking my deck. The nails had all but pulled out of the connection to the house. Now I need to move it back tight to the house and nail it again. If I just use long screws, will that do the job? It looks like I have other nail issues where the wood beams and columns come together, too. Again, are screws the answer? Franklin, I'm happy that you and your family members were not hurt because across this country there are decks that are failing. Across this country there have been building code changes in the last five to ten years because of similar problems to what you are encountering. That is, for so many years, decks were considered an add-on or sort of an appendage, if you will, to the home, and it was never viewed by code officials, by engineers and architects as a real structural element to the house, not like holding the roof up or your second floor, for example. And because of that, many times across this nation, builders have just put decks together almost like they were kids' tree houses. Well, this is the way I would do it. This seems right. These are the nails I have in the gun. This is what I have in the nail pouch. I'm going to use these. It'll be okay. And it holds in place long enough for them to get away from the project and indeed last for many years. But it's not a permanent solution. And that's what we're recognizing from state to state to state. So you're not by yourself in Reading. And over time, not only do we have issues with the just the use of these decks, but we have wind, we have snow, we have other loads, not only wind load, but we also have live loads from snow and so forth that takes its toll on this. We have lumber that tends to expand and contract and shrink, and our house moves at a different rate. All of these things are negatives when it comes to keeping a deck stable. So in your case, and for those of you that have older decks, I want to recommend first that you do what Franklin has, and that is check the deck on a regular basis. If it has nothing more than nails where you see them on a band board tying it back into the house, this would be one thing that would be fairly alarming to me. You want to be certain that this is tight. Franklin, to, to deal with your specific question, 
Fasteners are going to be a proper way to install it using screws or bolts, but you have to know what you're going into. If the house was constructed with only studs and they were nailing into each stud, then you're going to have to find the right type of anchored device, a screw or a lag screw, that will properly anchor that into the base plate, into the band board of the house, or into that stud. You may also find that it's still inadequate. If you really consult with a local engineer or architect for the best way to do this, you may find you need to add some additional vertical support immediately adjacent to the house where it's tied in right now and transfer part of that load down to the ground by putting in additional post and additional foundation supports. Now, you also talk about some issues where the beams and columns make contact. Older decks typically were toenailed together. You didn't find, in many cases, um, galvanized devices used to tie those two together, proper devices, straps. And if you don't have those for all of you, I'm going to suggest you use, you go out and buy joist hangers or column and beam connectors. You can install these after the fact, go back and nail them or screw them together, and be sure you have that deck properly reinforced. Franklin, that's where you need to be. And whatever you do, stay safe with it. You know, this is particularly apt if you're listening to us in a college town. In a lot of instances where decks attached uh, to apartments or multifamily-type homes have given way because they simply stuff too many people on these decks. Well, and most of us don't think about it because we're not in that business. We don't. It's, hey, I've got a space. I can stand. Fred over here. Sally can stand here. I've got room for two or three more people, and we don't think about the loads that we're imposing. That's not only true of decks, but it's also true of second floors. In homes, office buildings are designed for different loads. So when you're having a party in your house, not just on your deck, but if it's inside, if it's raining, you want to move 75 people into your living room, you might wind up in the basement if you've got one. Well, and it's interesting you bring that up again. That's happened in some student housing across the country where, again, you're just jamming too many people in at one time. Again, we just don't think about it because it's not something that we worry about on a regular basis. We've got space. It's just like furniture. It's the same way. File cabinets. I've seen people have sags in the floors of the house because they've, they've used it for an office and they've got all these dead files stacked up. It's just a tremendous load. Well, let's go from decks. How about to chimneys? I know we've got another email uh, from Dennis that deals with a question pertaining to his chimney. Yeah, basically, Dennis uh, tells us that he has observed a crack in his chimney. It's about a quarter inch wide, two feet long, coming from the top of the chimney down. He asks, can I use a masonry mortar caulk to repair it? And there are several brands of that in the market. So I don't mind working off an extension ladder. I just want to be sure I'm doing the right thing. Dennis, the answer would seem very simple. And if you have only a brick mortar joint crack, then yes, the product that comes in a tube form that's a mortar repair will work quite well as long as you clean out the loose material that might be in that. And it's good that you've observed this because if it's limited to that, if it's only on the surface on the outside of that face brick, then this will prevent water from getting in and having uh, winter issues when it freezes, thaws, and, and those type items, as well as prevent water from getting behind the brick and having an efflorescence problem. The more serious side of this, though, and so I'm not giving you just the simple answer, is that if that crack runs through the backup brick behind it, if it's caused perhaps by a crack in the flue liner or something more serious going on inside that chimney, this can be a fire hazard. It certainly can be a safety hazard to you and occupants of the home. And what I would suggest is if you have not had the chimney, the firebox and the flue examined for a number of years by a chimney sweep, someone that will can examine it top to bottom, put a mirror in it, some use camera systems today, if that has not occurred in a long period of time, I'm going to recommend to you that you have a professional out to look at that and do two things. One, go ahead and clean the chimney because you're not in, in the winter season yet, but that will be coming. 
And as you start firing this up, you want to be safe with it, but I'd go ahead and have it cleaned and then have a thorough examination inside out, not just from the outside in, because this is where so many of our chimney fires start. There are small cracks in the flue liners that we don't see. It gets in through the flue liner. It gets into the framing in the house, and then we have a chimney fire. So based on your question, I have to tell you with a word of caution, I'd be taking a good, serious look at the inside first before I just start sealing the exterior. Well, we are just weeks away from the annual Fire Prevention Week, which will happen in early October. And I know in talking with professional firefighters, those are some of the most difficult fires to deal with are those chimney fires because of the situation that you alluded to. A lot of times they're not able to be detected immediately, and then also they're very difficult at times to deal with. Well, first, they're completely concealed in most cases. If that fire is caused by embers coming up through that flue and it's gotten into these small cracks and worked its way into the framing of the house, it's up against masonry. It is completely sealed in almost every case. And even when they're fighting this fire, it's the reason many of us will hear from the news reporters they're going to stand by for several hours to be sure everything is fine. It can redevelop again, even though they may have put hundreds of gallons of water on it to put it out. Those embers are in these small pockets that they just can't see, and it may reignite at a later time. So I'm always very cautious when I hear folks talk about cracks in chimneys. And I don't mean to scare you because it is very possible that if you've got a stone veneer, you've got brick on the outside, that that's all it is is an exterior surface crack. If you've had that service in the last few months, maybe this past winter, I'd say you're probably fine. But if it's been a while, you need to take a hard look at it. If you have a question for Ken the Contractor, you can reach us at 800-614-2975. Email your questions to our website, KenTheContractor.com. Friend us on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow us on Twitter at Ken Answers. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back and thanks for joining us this weekend. Ken the Contractor is right here, ready to answer your questions. Whether you're doing some home improvement projects this weekend or just a nagging issue you want to have taken care of the right way. Finally, Ken Patterson is Ken the Contractor. He's a Class A licensed contractor whose design built multi-million dollar commercial and industrial projects as well as single family homes up and down the East Coast. And he's right here to help you and deal with the questions that are important to today's homeowner. You can be part of our program by emailing us at KenTheContractor.com or you can give us a call at 800-614-2975. Now it's time for this week's green building update. Well, and this is one that is affecting every one of us across the country because of changes in uh, the death, I should say, of the incandescent light bulb and the more energy-efficient CFLs and LEDs and others that we've seen in the marketplace. This talks a little bit about the life cycle assessment, and uh, that tells us how much money uh, really we're spending when it comes to operating any of these particular devices. But it shows that the LED lamps slightly outperform the compact fluorescents. Many of us just refer to them as CFLs when we look at the life cycle assessment on environmental impacts related to their manufacturing, transport, and use. That includes our energy consumption. The U.S. Department of Energy has released the second of three reports, and we'll be bringing you the third one at a later date, in its life cycle assessment of energy and environmental impacts on LED lighting products, which compares the impacts of an incandescent lamp which are dying, they're going the way of the dinosaur, a CFL, the compact fluorescent, a 2012 Philips Endural LED, and a hypothetical, like I like this one, a hypothetical 2017 LED based on projected improvements in technology. In the course of the 20 million lumen hours of light service, roughly equivalent to the lifetime output of the Philips uh, Endural LED, three CFLs or 22 incandescent lamps, the LED lamps perform far better 
than incandescent lighting and better than CFLs on most measures. And what we're seeing, the reason I bring this to air when we look at green building is because whether you like it or not, we're being compelled across this country to move into more energy-efficient lighting. The benefit is we're going to save operating costs on a monthly basis, which is great. We're also helping the environment. We're reducing the need for more uh, power-generating facilities around the nation as well. So I will continue to keep you updated on this battle between the LEDs and the CFLs and anything else that's new in the marketplace that will help us see better in our home and save money monthly for us and hopefully improve our air quality. I don't want to be the cranky old man here, uh, but one of the things that we were sold was how long these things were going to last. And uh, my wife and I have started to mark down exactly, you know, when we replace a bulb. And we had one just the other day uh, that had only been in there from uh, last October. And all of a sudden, it crapped out. Well, you know, I tell you, I'm right there with you because I've been the one on the show for some time telling people, date these items. Mm-hmm. In many cases, if you save the original wrapper or the receipt that it comes in, these manufacturers that say we've got a 10-year warranty, a 3-year warranty, and that's partly what we're paying for. When we pay more money, we're paying for these warranties. If you save those items, I would be taking them back to the vendor to where I bought it and say, look, three years, six months, whatever, this is a 3-year bulb, a 10-year bulb didn't last, or a lamp didn't last that long, want my money back. They're going to process it and send it back to the manufacturer. But the majority of us will not do that. No. So they make out really well on that. Yeah, they do. <laughs> well, which is, is the case, as you know, because you read all these particular details uh, that a lot of folks make a lot of money on some of these warranties, guarantees, or everything else because we just don't keep all the documentation we need to actually get a refund or to get the product replaced. Well, we don't. I, I sent an email to one of my commercial clients just yesterday reminding them, said, it's in the fine print on this particular piece of equipment that's being purchased. You must save the original crate that it comes in if you're going to receive a refund if there's an issue within the six-month period of time that it was under warranty. And if we don't do that, then we're, we're, we're going to lose, folks. And manufacturers know this. But when it comes to the CFLs, the LEDs, and others, there's still a battle going on. To me, this is a little bit like the old uh, VCRs when they first came out, you know, between beta and VHS. Mm-hmm. There was a contest for a while. We've seen that in other technology. And I think that's where we're going to be. We're going to see one of these settle out. It may take us five to seven more years, but we're going to see one take the lead in the marketplace. Then we're going to see manufacturers of light fixtures really rally around that and develop the styles that work best with these lamps. Our phone lines are open. If you have a question for Ken, the number is 800-614-2975. And Sarah has one of those questions for Ken as she gets ready to join us right now. Hi, Sarah. You're on the air with Ken the Contractor. We are looking into hopefully moving or building a house in the near future, and we will be moving into the country where we will have a septic system. And I wondered what your thoughts were on having a garbage disposal with a septic system. Is that doable? Yeah, absolutely it is, but you want to be careful about what you put down the drain. And this is not something that should be peculiar to just septic systems. It's more important there, but we also want to be careful what we're putting down the drain, even if we're on a domestic sewer, meaning you live in a city or county where it's providing the sewer connection service to you. So, Sarah, in your case, I, I want to caution you and others on septic systems, one, to not put any oil or grease down these drains. You don't want to put bones and those type items. One, it's not going to be good for your garbage disposal in the first place. It's not great for the plumbing lines in the house either. You also want to be careful about certain chemicals that are caustic in nature and those that can harm the bacteria in the septic tank. A lot of you don't know uh, how these systems work. It's just out of sight, out of mind, but it's 
bacteria that has to live and thrive on the solids that you're discharging into the septic tank that cause it to break down, to break it down into a liquid and allow that to discharge into the drain field and then to perk and evaporate, a combination of both those in many locations. So you need to be careful that what goes down your drain is going to be safe for septic systems. And when it comes to washing detergents you, for your washing machine and or a dishwasher, you want to be sure that those items you're using also say on the label that it's safe for septic tanks. Because if you kill the bacteria, then all of a sudden you're going to have this whole system back up with solids. You're going to be paying a lot of money for a septic tank company to come pump this out and to start the cycle all over again. So if you take heed to that, install that garbage disposal Help get rid of some of the junk if you're not into uh, gardening. But if you're into gardening, you're also going to find that uh, composting is a great way to get rid of certain table scraps that will go well in your garden or your plant area. Whereas once, a garbage disposal was pretty much standard uh, when it, uh, whenever a, a home was built. Now very rare. And I won't say it's very rare, but they're not as common. They used to be as common as putting the front door on the house. And today, a lot of people just don't pay as much attention to it. They're not concerned about it. We are, I think, a little more environmentally conscious. People are composting, even if they're living in subdivisions or using certain products in their flower gardens. Maybe they raise a few tomatoes out back. But this is something that, as a society, we have seen changes in. So if you are buying a new house, too, you might also want to ask the builder, if you're thinking it's got a garbage disposal, you may want to make that inspection just to be sure it does have one. We've got to step aside for a quick break. Then we'll come right back with more. If you have a question for Ken, you can call us at 800-614-2975. You're listening to Ken the Contractor. Welcome back. This is Ken the Contractor. Do you have a roofing question? Problems with some windows, some plumbing, siding, whatever it is, Ken Patterson is here to help. He is Ken the Contractor. You can always reach Ken at 800-614-2975. That's 800-614-2975. Or you can email your questions to Ken at KenTheContractor.com. And that's exactly what Donna has done coming to us from Topeka, Kansas. She said, I moved into my first house a few weeks ago. said, I'm really excited and also on a budget. I tend to leave the doors and windows open to save energy when the heat is not excessive. Now, I've noticed during certain times of the day that the bathroom toilet is wet on the exterior of the top part, I think the tank, sometimes on the outside of the bottom also. Do I have a plumbing problem or a leak? I have to clean the water off the floor occasionally, but it's not like a constant running. This is not really an uncommon issue in certain parts of the country in certain types times of the year, Donna. I don't believe you have a leak. What I'm going to suggest you do is check the following. Uh, I think what you have first is a condensation issue. You haven't told me whether you're on a well or you're on domestic or city or county water supply, and that can make a little bit of a difference. But let's assume that you are on a uh, on a well system, for example. Water tends to be a little colder coming up out of the ground, depending on where your pressure or storage tank is, and it may come out of the ground at 60 degrees. If your pressure tank is in a basement or in some place that's shaded and not outside, it's not going to get extremely warm. What you're doing is bringing very cold water into that toilet tank, and you're right, the top part's called the tank and a two-part unit. The bottom is the bowl, and it sits there. And if we have very warm or humid days, it creates condensation on the outside. This is just not uncommon. We see it in all parts of the country from time to time. So the way you can resolve that, there are several things you can do, and, and I don't recommend you spend a bunch of money on this, 
but you may find that you just need to keep the windows closed in that area. In that bathroom, you may also need to, re, to run the exhaust fan for a longer period of time to help pull, uh, exchange the heat or at least keep it a little more modest in that area. And if this occurs more often, right after a shower, for example, you've got this hot, moist air that's having a tendency to cling to the the fixture, and you've got the cold water inside, and it's creating that condensation. So you can pay attention to the cycles here and see what will eliminate it. You, it doesn't sound like you have anything to be concerned with. It's more a usage issue, and no doubt you'll find that once the heat dissipates, you start closing windows, that this goes away in the fall and the winter months, and it's something you'll learn to deal with and control better as you move through the warmer season. Whatever you do, don't let it create a problem where your rotting surfaces, the subfloor or the wall or something along those lines are creating mold or mildew. Time now for our app of the week. What's our app of the week deal with this week? Well, recently I gave you one that uh, was produced by the American Red Cross that dealt with storms. But one I want you to carry with you today that most of us should have, especially if you're not trained or certified in first aid or CPR. And that is one produced also by the American Red Cross. It is their first aid app. And it's the official Red Cross app. It's not one put together by somebody else. It's available for iPod and Android devices. And it's the uh, official site for them. Some features that you'll find there are simple step-by-step instructions. And it guides all of us through everyday first aid scenarios from cuts, scratches, bruises, breaks, debris in your eye, everything that we're all typically dealing with or have from time to time. It's fully integrated with 911, so if you happen to be on this app and uh, the issue you get into determines you decide you need emergency help, you can call the EMS service through 911 also by touching the particular app. It has videos and animations that make learning first aid both fun and easy, and that's one of the things I like about it. You're not sitting in a training class. If you've never been to a training class and you're saying some of these might be new to me, don't know that I can read it and follow it well, well, they actually bring to you first aid videos. They're showing you how to do certain things. There's safety tips for everyone from severe weather uh, winter weather to hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, all of that's part of the app as well. And if we're in a situation you're saying, this is great, Ken, but if I'm in an environmental uh, a problem with a natural disaster and I have no cell tower, I have no cell service, what do I do? This will preload most of these first aid items. So as long as you've got your phone with you, it's like carrying a book, you can open it up. What do I do for severe bleeding, for example, for a compound break? All of that's at your fingertips. So check it out. It's the first aid app by American Red Cross. Well, you know, it's interesting. We were talking on one of our local programs how the number of people in certain circumstances are harmed for mo- far more by people not treating someone properly than whatever the the initial incident is, uh, that they've received the wrong care. Uh, and that's ended up either making an injury more serious or more life-threatening, whereas the proper technique uh, would have rendered it, you know, basically uh, rather easy to deal with. And it's sad to say, but sometimes no treatment is better than the wrong treatment. And that's one reason in things, uh, you know, people injured in car accidents, many times first responders would tell you that unless the vehicle is on fire, Wait until the EMS people are there who know how to properly move them and stabilize them. They may have a severe head or back injury, for example. Do no harm is one of the things that the professionals will tell you. Exactly right. All right, time for uh, one more email before we we wrap up uh, this hour. And this one comes to us out of Pennsylvania. Tony writes, he said, my wife and I live in a 100-year-old Victorian wood home. The basement walls are made of field stone and the floor is made of slate. 
We've lived in the home for about 40 years and have experienced a damp basement smell ever since moving in. Recently, they put in one of those access door hatches where an old coal, uh, coal room used to be. The contractor who put it in thought it might help get rid of some of the odors and problems that they're having down there. However, he goes on now. He says, not only do I have the doors in place, which has helped me get in and out, but now those leak, and I still have a humidity problem. And We have so much humidity, I can't run a humidifier all the time. I'd be down there emptying this. I need some help. That's the bottom line. He's got a very long email here. First off, any hatch that's put in hatchway, access way to the outside of a basement needs to be properly sealed. In your case, Tony, you're telling me that you've got a stone foundation. That makes it unusually difficult. It's a little easier if you're up against concrete block, concrete walls, or just brickwork. But where you have stonework, there are gaskets and seals made for all of these. They're a compression seal, and they fit and mold and conform to whatever that exterior surface happens to be. Stone's going to be rather rough. Now, if you have some excessive projections on that stone, your contractor may need to grind down or chip away at those in order to make this a reasonably secure gap and eliminate both light and air and water and snow, which is the problem you go on to elaborate with here in your email. So, yes, that can be installed correctly. It sounds like you had an improper installation. So you need to call the contractor or a contractor, another one back out, and ask that it be done properly using these. Don't allow them just to throw a tube of caulking on each side and say that solves the problem because caulking is not the solution. It is a cosmetic item. It's not designed for long-term waterproofing. I don't care what it says on the side. That's my experience with it. So seal it up properly. That's one issue. You also go on to tell me you're installing a couple of sump pumps in the basement. If you have constant water problems, as you say you do, that's going to be a good start. You need to look at the outside of the house. Be sure that the water is draining away from the house. If you need to bring some fill dirt in and compact it up against the house so you have a positive slope, that could help. Be sure that if you have gutter and downspout, that the downspouts are taking the water away from the house during a rain. Also, stone basements are so unique, these old ones compared to brick or block, in that they typically are just solid stone with mortar joint from inside from out. And one of the things that will help you if the water's coming in above grade, largely rainwater, is to waterproof that. Something as simple and inexpensive as a Thompson water seal that you can spray on with a garden sprayer every year or so will do justice to that. And if you have any type of other drainage swales around the house, you want to be sure it's conveying the water away from the house. A home this old is not likely to have any type of a foundation drain, so I can't give you much advice with that. If you've got a serious problem, that is the permanent solution is to install a foundation drain. Good luck, Tony. Don't forget, if you've got a question for Ken, email him at kenthecontractor.com or give us a call at 800-614-2975. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor, where folks come for professional answers. Thanks for joining us this hour on Ken the Contractor. You've been listening to Ken the Contractor. Every weekend at this time, Ken the Contractor, Ken Patterson is here taking your calls. Don't forget, you can friend Ken on Facebook at Ken the Contractor and follow him on Twitter at Ken Answers. And if you're looking for home improvement information at any time, go to KenTheContractor.com.